Uh, Go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 1. We'll read our text and then pray together. Our text this morning is Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. Paul writes this, Colossians 1, 24 through 29. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Father, we come to you this morning. We've gathered here because we desire for you to speak to us. We confess that we need you to speak to us. And we believe that you will speak to us as your word is read, as it is preached. We ask, Spirit, that you would reveal to us the truth that we need, direct us into your will, and shape us into the image of Christ for his glory. Amen. Have you ever had the experience where you walk into a room and you've gone there to get something? Maybe you went down to the basement or you went into a closet and then you find yourself standing there and you're thinking, now why did I come in here again? What was I looking for? Maybe you go to the fridge, you open it up, and you're staring at everything, and then you go, what was I, what was I supposed to be grabbing? I can't remember. Um, that's a small thing. I think it's something that's happened to all of us. But it's not a small thing when you go through life like that, and you don't understand what it is you're supposed to be doing, why it is, there, why it is that you're here, what it is that you're supposed to be all about. The Apostle Paul was a man who knew what his calling was. A man who understood fully what his God-given purpose in this life was. He had a laser focus on spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes this. In verse 14, the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves. But for him who for their sake died and was raised. Verse 18, he says, God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. There in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul explains the heartbeat of his ministry. He understood the logic of the gospel, that Christ died for me, therefore I must live for him. The God who reconciled us, to himself through Christ, 
has given us a ministry of reconciliation, to see other people come to experience the same grace of salvation. He says we are entrusted with the message of reconciliation. That's the gospel. We are to be ambassadors for Christ. We represent him. We speak for him in the world. This was Paul's driving passion, the focus of his mind, and the goal of all of his efforts. You might say, wow, that's great for Paul. Good for him. I'm glad he did that. But what does this have to do with me? Because none of us in the room today are apostles. None of us in the world today are apostles. And I'm the only pastor here this morning. So does this text here in Colossians, where Paul talks about his gospel ministry, does this text have something to say to us today? I believe it does. We all have a responsibility, all of us, to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. We all play a part. Our church's mission, as we've said time and time again, is this. We exist to glorify God by being and, you say it, hopefully you know it, making disciples of Jesus. That's why we're here. That's what our mission is, and we believe that's the clear teaching of Scripture. Well, in the example of Paul's ministry, I believe we find a clear model that we ought to follow. The point of this text in Colossians 1 this morning is this. We must fully and faithfully give ourselves to gospel ministry. Fully and faithfully give ourselves to gospel ministry. And that raises an important question, doesn't it? If that's what we're supposed to do, what does that look like? What does faithful gospel ministry involve? What does it require of us? As we look at our text this morning, we'll just observe four key elements of gospel ministry. The first we find in verse 24. Gospel ministry involves suffering for Christ. Paul says this, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Gospel ministry involves suffering for Christ. If you go right before verse 24 and verse 23, you'll see that Paul has described himself as a minister of the gospel. He's been telling us who Jesus is. He's been talking about the gospel, and he says, this gospel, he says, I've become a minister of this good news, in verse 23. And for Paul, being a minister of the gospel has meant suffering. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul gives us a little bit of his resume, his experience. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Quick math question for the kids. What's 40 minus one? You can just say it. 39. That's a lot of lashes. That's a lot of times to be beaten with a whip. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes minus one. I'll ask Stephen. What's... What would that be? Five times 39. You do that math real quick. I didn't do it in my study. I'm put you on the spot. Caleb's an accountant. You should rattle that off, right? Huh? It's a lot. It's a lot. I didn't do the math. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, 
And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul's ministry for him meant suffering. Now, this was not the suffering that simply comes from living in a broken world. Many of us have suffered. In fact, we all suffer. All you have to do is live long enough and you will suffer. Sin, sickness, loss, death, and pain, we all face suffering. But Paul's suffering was not like that kind of suffering because Paul's suffering was optional. It was optional. You can't opt out of some suffering, but you can opt out of suffering for the sake of the gospel. Paul could have easily avoided all of those things we just talked about from 2 Corinthians 11. The lashings, the beatings, the shipwreck, the hunger. All he had to do was stop his efforts to advance the gospel. If he would have just stopped preaching, stopped traveling, stopped battling air, stopped planting churches, stopped trying to develop leaders, he would have stopped suffering. But just as he urged us in verse 23 not to shift away from the hope of the gospel... Neither will Paul shift from the ministry of the gospel. And here's the amazing thing. Paul didn't just endure these sufferings. Look at verse 24. I rejoice in my sufferings. Why? How? Was Paul some sort of masochist that he just liked it? No. He rejoiced in these sufferings. Because look what he says. I rejoiced in my sufferings for your sake. Paul rejoiced because he knew that his sufferings brought benefit to the people of God. He does not suffer for himself. He suffers on their behalf. And this is the very definition of love, is it not? It's love to give and to sacrifice, to desire the good of the other, even if it costs you. You see, because of Paul's sufferings, these believers had access to the gospel, They had heard the gospel directly from Epaphras, a man who had come to faith because of Paul's ministry in Ephesus, a place where Paul had suffered. These believers were encouraged and strengthened, just like the Philippians, through his example as he suffered. They were encouraged and strengthened through his letters, like this letter of Colossians. And this gives Paul a cause to rejoice. He who in his former life had persecuted the church and made the body of Christ to suffer because of his hatred, now suffers for the sake of that body, because he loves them. But notice how else he describes his sufferings. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. What does this statement mean, filling up what is lacking in in Christ's afflictions? It's probably one of the most confusing statements in this whole book. It's a tricky one that we need to pay attention to. What does this mean? Well, first of all, it cannot mean that Christ's work on the cross, his suffering to purchase our salvation, is somehow incomplete, that it's somehow deficient, and that somehow what Paul is doing is adding to that. That is what this cannot mean. You see, the word afflictions here that Paul uses, this flipsis, this pressure, this squeezing, this this experience of tribulation and adversity, it is often translated as tribulation, adversity, those kinds of words. And it is never used throughout the New Testament to describe the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. 
So he is not, in that sense, filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ on the cross. That is not what he is meaning. Paul makes elsewhere crystal clear, even in this letter, that he is absolutely convinced of the total sufficiency and effectiveness of the work of Christ on the cross. Christ's suffering has brought reconciliation with God. We saw that in verse 20. Through him, God has reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Not making peace by the blood of his cross and your sufferings. Making peace by the blood of his cross, full stop. The work of Christ is always described as finished and complete and sufficient and enough. You see it in verse 22. You, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. That is a perfected, completed, finished idea. We see it in verse 11 through 15 of chapter 2. Paul says, we'll look in verse 12, that we have been buried with him, with Christ in baptism. We are raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. In verse 13, it says, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having in the past forgiven us all our trespasses. How? Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. It's done. It's done. So Paul does not mean that the suffering of Christ on the cross is somehow deficient or that it's not enough, that there's more needed. In the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews three times describes Christ's work on the cross as being once for all. Once for all. So when Paul says that he suffers for them, he is not suffering in their place like Christ did. He's rather suffering on their behalf to bring some additional benefit to them. So that's what it doesn't mean. So let's, let's cross that option off the list, okay? But what does it mean in a positive sense to fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ? Well, I think it means, first of all, that Paul knew that his personal call was to suffer. He knew that there was suffering that God had planned for his life, a quota, if you would, that must be fulfilled. In Acts chapter 9 Uh, This is at Paul's conversion. God says to a man that would disciple Paul, the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument, Paul is, a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. God had a plan for Paul to suffer. In 1 Thessalonians 3.2, Paul says, we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. That's the same word that Paul uses in Colossians. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Destined for what? Destined for these afflictions. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Paul was not looking to avoid his destiny, but he faced it head on, fully submitted to God's will for his life, filling up that quota, walking the path that God had ordained for him. So it was not that Christ's suffering on the cross was somehow lacking. It's that Paul had not yet suffered to the degree that he knew God had planned. And he wasn't avoiding it. He was meeting it head on. 
Paul also knew that not just him as an apostle, but all who follow Christ will suffer. Jesus says, if anyone would follow me, he must what? Take up his cross and deny himself and follow me. In suffering, Paul was identifying with Christ. Philippians 3.10, Paul says that he has given up everything. Why? So that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul knew that Jesus suffered for him, and he rejoiced to suffer for Jesus. It was an honor for Paul and a small sacrifice compared with the reward that he knew that suffering would bring. Matthew 5.11, Jesus himself, the Sermon on the Mount says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Paul knew, as I suffer, it's not only bringing you blessing, it's not only fulfilling God's calling for my life, it's, it's a joy, it's a privilege, because this is the path to reward. In Romans 8, 18, Paul wrote, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is why Paul could say, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. I'm filling up what's lacking in the afflictions of Christ. I'm completing my call and identifying with my Savior. Are you willing to suffer for the advance of the gospel? Are you willing to identify with Christ and receive the same scorn and mockery that he experienced? Are you ready to carry your cross, to suffer social awkwardness, To experience ridicule or rejection? Are you willing to be mocked or ignored or written off? This is the extent that most of us will experience suffering. In our current cultural moment, there is typically no threat of physical violence. We're not going to be beaten or have our heads cut off like Paul, at least today in this nation. There are others around the world who face that. But how will we be ready for that kind of suffering If we're unwilling to endure simply being treated as fools for Christ's sake. Friends, if we would be faithful to the ministry God has given us. If we would follow Paul's Paul's model of faithful gospel ministry. Then we must not shrink back from opposition. We must not consider the cost to be too high. A A refusal to suffer for Christ reveals a lack of love for the lost, a lack of love for our Savior, and a surplus of love for ourselves and our own comfort. In all things, as we saw earlier in chapter one, Christ must be preeminent. He is supreme. And that means that sinners need to be reconciled to God. That means that suffering will be sometimes necessary, and it will be at all times worth it. So if we're going to be faithful to gospel ministry, number one, it's going to involve, perhaps, suffering. But number two, gospel ministry requires proclaiming Christ. And this is really the heart of this text in verses 25 through 28. At the end of 24, he speaks of Christ and his body, the church. He says, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. To make the word of God fully known. 
The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim. Gospel ministry requires proclaiming Christ. Paul recounts for us here his personal call to the ministry, a call to preach the gospel. He says this is a stewardship, a responsibility Something that's been entrusted to him that was given from God. In Ephesians 3.8, Paul says, To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace, this gift was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul was called to proclaim Christ. He was given this message, this gospel to preach. And what is the content of that message? What's the responsibility he has as a steward? Well, he tells us to make the word of God, in the, at the end of verse 25, fully known. To make the word of God fully known. Paul's not here to proclaim his message. He's not here to give us his ideas. He's not here to give us his opinions. Paul says that his call is to make the word of God fully known. It's the truth of Scripture, and Paul describes making the Word of God fully known as unfolding a mystery. He's preaching God's promises from the Old Testament, the, the symbols that point to Christ, the expectations and the prophecies that have all come together in the person of Jesus and, and our experience of union with this Jesus, this Christ, through faith. It's an amazing thing, and Paul is, is excited to declare what common commentaries call this open secret, what was once concealed and hidden in the Old Testament that, that wasn't seen in 3D. We saw echoes of it and hints and, and prophecies, but now in the person of Christ, we see God in the flesh. The promises of God are yes in him, and he says, this Christ dwells in you by his spirit. What an incredible message that Paul has the privilege of proclaiming that the God who once dwelt in the tabernacle and later in the temple now dwells in all who believe. I think Paul's taking a shot here also at the false teachers who are proclaiming themselves and who were telling people that they needed to connect with all these various angels and spiritual beings And to have mystical experiences because God was holy and unreachable and you couldn't connect directly with him. So you had to get there through all of these, you know, like a giant game of angelic telephone, you know, to get to God. Paul says we don't need that. We have Christ in us. The Christ who is the image of God in whom all the fullness of the Godhead dwells. That God dwells in us. And he says this is a mystery. This is something that wasn't this is so much greater than perhaps what we ever could have dreamed for. And he says it's the riches of God's grace. The riches of God's grace. The glorious mystery that Christ dwells in us. And Paul says this is our hope. This is our hope. Our hope is not in our performance. Our hope is not in our knowledge. Our hope is not in our goodness. Our hope is in Christ, the one with whom we are united through faith. Christ dwelling in us now means that we will one day dwell with him in glory. That's the hope of glory. His union with us means that we have received the fullness of God's salvation. All these false teachers were telling the people, you need something more. You need Jesus plus all these religious rituals. You need Jesus plus these mystical experiences. You need Jesus plus all of these regulations. 
Paul says, we need Jesus. That's the hope of glory. You have all you need if you have him. Paul preaches Christ as the all-sufficient Savior. As he'll say in chapter 2, verse 10, and you have been filled in him. We are complete in Christ. No wonder Paul declares with triumphant authority and dedication and full commitment in verse 28, him we proclaim. His message is Christ. That's what you get when you unfold the full word of God. When you make it fully known, when you unwrap the mystery, when you look into the depth of the glorious grace and riches of God's promises, you get Christ. You get Christ. So Paul says, him we proclaim. This is the hallmark of Paul's ministry, the proclamation of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 4, 5, he says, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. It's not about self-promotion. It's not about Paul's personality. It's not about his personal brand. It's about the preeminent Christ who is supreme in his person and power and sufficient in his work of redemption on the cross. This is the content of Paul's preaching. He says, here's my calling. I was given this stewardship and here's the content of this message. It's Christ. It's all summed up in Christ. But notice the character of his preaching in verse 28. He says, him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Paul says, I'm not just casually talking about Jesus. Warning here means speaking with authority. He warns us not to fall away from Christ, as we saw in verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. In chapter 2, verse 4, he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Paul warns us not to fall away from Christ. He warns us not to tolerate the sin that brings God's wrath. We see that in chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. To proclaim Christ means not only announcing his love and his mercy for those who believe, the good news, but also telling people the truth about the coming judgment upon those who do not believe in Christ. Perhaps some of you need that warning today. Perhaps Christ is not in you, only a sin-darkened heart. You need to hear this offer of salvation proclaimed. You need to confess your sin. You need to trust in Christ's work on the cross to cleanse you. You need to receive the forgiveness that only comes through Christ. You need to bow to Jesus as king and be reconciled to God. There is no other way. Christ in us is the hope of glory, a confident expectation of eternal life. But apart from Christ, there is no hope of glory. There is no confident expectation of life. Apart from Christ, you are destined not for glory, but for eternity in hell. But Christ suffered on the cross so that you could be saved. Paul suffered to spread this good news, and so have many throughout the history of the church, so that today you could sit here in this place and hear the open proclamation of the good news that Christ died for our sins and rose again, and all who believe in him can be saved. I urge you at this moment to surrender to Christ and place your trust in him to save you so that you can share in this hope that many of us have that we will one day see him face to face and be glorified and enjoy the glory of his presence.
Paul says that his ministry of proclaiming Christ includes warning everyone, but it also includes teaching everyone, teaching everyone. He imparts in his ministry essential truths that must be understood. He proclaims Christ as the image of God, in him the fullness of the Godhead dwelling. He proclaims Christ as the creator and the sustainer of all things. He proclaims Christ as the sacrifice for sin, who secures forgiveness for us. He proclaims Christ as the redeemer who reconciles us to God. He proclaims Christ as the firstborn from the dead, who defeated the grave and opens the way to eternal life. He proclaims Christ as the coming king who will one day judge the living and the dead. This book is packed with the doctrine of Christ. And we need to know doctrine. We need to know truth. We need to be taught and instructed so that we might worship Christ as he truly is. Not have our own ideas about what we think Jesus is like or what we want Jesus to be like, but to know him as he has revealed himself in the scripture so we might worship him and believe in him and reject error and reject the false teaching that would deceive us and delude us and lead us away from Christ. So he says he teaches everyone. But we don't just need to know doctrine. We also need to know how to live, don't we? Paul will exhort these Colossians in chapter 3 and chapter 4 and instruct them on how to live in a manner that is worthy of their calling. He'll teach them to have an eternal perspective. He'll teach them to live a holy life. He'll teach them how to engage in the ministry of the church. He'll teach them to forgive each other. He'll teach them to honor God in their homes and in their workplaces. Paul's preaching of Christ includes not only what is true, but also the implications of those truths. He says, we proclaim him, we proclaim Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Friends, faithful gospel ministry can never be reduced to entertainment. There's no warning there, and there's no teaching there. It can never be downgraded to just motivational speaking. If I just try to whip you up and, and, just, and, and, and get you fired up to go do things sheerly by the force of personality, that's temporary, that fades. It's not grounded in the doctrinal truths of Scripture, and it's not guided by the clear instructions of the Word. The proclamation of Christ should never devolve just into a group therapy session where we coddle one another's emotions and ignore the warnings and the teachings of Scripture. The proclamation of Christ can never become about us. It can never become about culture. It can never become about the countless ideas and topics and issues that flood the church. Gospel ministry must have at its center the proclamation of Christ and is marked by warning and teaching with all wisdom so that the truth of Christ permeates our lives and brings transformation into the likeness of Christ. That brings us to our third point. Gospel ministry aims... For maturity in Christ. It aims for maturity in Christ. So we've seen that gospel ministry involves suffering. It requires the proclamation of Christ. But it also aims for maturity in Christ. Look in verse 28 at the end there. He says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? That we may present everyone mature in Christ. If you go back up to verse 22, Paul referred to Christ presenting us to God, holy and blameless. There is a day coming 
when we will all stand before the judge. And those for whom Christ died, those whose sins have been forgiven, those who have been made new, made alive, new creations in Christ, will be presented by Christ holy and blameless. That is our legal standing. That is a declaration of who we are in Christ. This same word for presentation is used by Paul down here in verse 28. But he's not referring to our, our legal standing, our positional holiness. He's rather talking about us growing bit by bit to live in a way that is consistent with that status. If this is who we are in Christ, then we should live in a way that reflects that. Not like immature spiritual babies, but those who have grown strong, those who have grown mature, who have deep roots. Spiritual maturity. Paul says that he proclaims Christ with, with warning and teaching so that he can present everyone mature in Christ. This word, teleos, means perfect or complete. It's the end for which we are meant. And it's the goal of all ministry. In Ephesians 4.11, Paul says that, that God has given the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. That word mature manhood is the same word translated here for maturity, that teleos, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Spiritual maturity is not just for pastors. It's for everyone who knows Christ. And Paul is fully committed to seeing that those who believe in Christ become increasingly like Christ. He's not content just to see people get saved and then move on. Because Paul knows that God is not content simply to save people and then leave them as he found them. God's aim is to conform those he saves into the image of Christ. God wants you to be mature. That's his will for you. Romans 8.29 says, Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. You see, God wants to do a lot more than just cancel your spiritual debt and bring you to heaven. He wants to renovate your heart. He's in the business of buying fixer-uppers. That's us. He wants to transform your character. I love the old hymn, Rock of Ages, by Augustus Toplady. It's just an awesome last name, but it's a good song. And in that song, as he, he pens these words, be of sin the double cure. There, there's, there's two things that happen when we come to know the Rock of Ages. Be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath, that's what Jesus does, and dying for us on the cross, and make me pure. That's the ongoing change that happens in the lives of those who've been rescued from sin and death. Let me ask you, are you involved in the spiritual development of others? Because if you're not, then you're not being obedient to the Great Commission in which we are commanded to make disciples. Discipleship is that journey towards maturity, that journey towards learning more of Christ and becoming more like Christ. And part of being a disciple is making disciples. That's why we say our mission here at our church is to glorify God by being and making. If you're not being a disciple, you can't make disciples. You have to know Christ yourself. But if you're not making disciples, 
you're not being a faithful disciple. There was a message on discipleship this past week in which Mark Dever said this. He said, if you are not regularly helping other people to follow Jesus, it's a good definition of discipleship. He says, if you're not regularly helping other people to follow Jesus, then I'm not sure what you mean when you say you are a follower of Jesus. And he's right. He's right. I think it's a good time for us to just stop and evaluate where we are as a church. You know, we planted this church four years ago, and we've seen God bring many people into this body for which we are thankful. That's why we came. But let me ask you, what is your concern and and, and goals for this church moving forward? If you're a member here, if you're part of this ministry, what kind of growth are you most seeking? What kind of growth are you praying for? What kind of growth... Are you working for in the church? Are you only excited about and interested in numerical growth? Or are you invested in the process of maturing other believers, seeing them brought to maturity in Christ? If I could quote Mark Dever one more time, he said this past week that the church growth we pray for is not just a growing number of people, but a number of growing people. I thought it was clever. I needed to share that. But he's right. That's what we want. Paul's Goals here in ministry should be our goals in ministry as well. But here's the good news. Numerical growth and growth and maturity are not opposed to each other. It's not like you can have one or the other. We seek both of them because here's how it works. Pressing towards spiritual maturity leads to numerical growth in this way. Mature believers, if that's what gets produced here in this church, mature believers share the gospel faithfully and effectively, which leads to numerical growth, doesn't it? Mature believers form a powerfully attractive community that radiates the grace of Christ and shines like light in a dark world. You know what that leads to? Numerical growth. People are drawn to that. If we will give ourselves to this aim, seeing believers matured in the faith, discipling people towards Christ-likeness, it will lead to growth in this church in terms of our depth, but I believe it will also lead to growth in terms of the breadth of this ministry. Faithful gospel ministry is aimed at maturity in Christ. That is the end game for us here. And then number four, gospel ministry demands labor for Christ. It demands labor for Christ. Paul says this in verse 29, for this, speaking of the spiritual maturity he just was talking about, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Seeking to help other people reach spiritual maturity is slow and hard work. The word for toil here is kopiao, similar to our word for copious. You can kind of get the flavor there. It has the idea of a difficult and exhausting labor. The word for struggle is agonizomai, like our word for agonize, and describes the exertion of two wrestlers locked in combat. You might look at two, two guys who are locked in combat in wrestling, and it looks like they're not really going anywhere doing anything. But there is a lot of effort being exerted because force is meeting force, and muscles are straining, joints are creaking, ligaments are stretched to the point of failure. That's what Paul's talking about here. He toils and he struggles to see people brought to maturity in Christ. 
You see, if we are going to engage in ministry like this, it's going to be much, much more than some casual endeavor that we do with our spare time. It's not something Paul does on the side. It's something that he pours himself into fully. He's leaving it all on the field. He's spilling his guts in order to bring other people to spiritual maturity in his study, in his preaching, in his praying, in the sacrifice of sleep, in the bearing of burdens, in patiently encouraging the downcast, in faithfully rebuking the wayward, in repeatedly instructing the ignorant. He gives all that he has physically and mentally and spiritually and emotionally to see these people grow in their faith. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, he says, By the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul fully gives himself to this ministry, heart and body and soul. There's no hint of apathy. There's no trace of selfishness. There's no room for self-seeking. He spends himself for the good of others and the glory of God. What do you spend yourself for? What are you toiling for? What do you struggle to achieve? What do you labor towards? Is it personal success? Is it pleasure? Arranging your social life to ensure personal happiness? Making enough money to live securely and comfortably? Or is your highest priority the glory of God through the advance of his gospel and the growth of his people? This might sound impossible to you as you think about the toil and the effort and the exertion and the duration because this is a marathon. It might sound impossible to you. It might sound like too much to give. But notice that while Paul affirms that he gives it everything he has, he knows that God is the one who gives him the power and the strength to carry out his duties in the ministry. The word for powerfully works here at the end of verse 29 is the same root word as the word for energy. Energy is the noun. Powerfully works is the verb form of the same word. Paul says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy. You could translate it that he energizes within me. God supernaturally supplies the grace to carry out his will for Paul's ministry. And he'll do the same for us. He'll do the same for us. When ministry gets hard for you, and and as I'm looking here around the room, I'm seeing many faithful servants of Christ who have toiled and labored in this church. Some for a short time, some for a long time. But when ministry gets hard, just let me encourage you, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. If we're doing it right, it's supposed to be hard. It's supposed to be hard. And it's precisely at those moments where it feels most difficult that instead of complaining, like, why is this so hard? Why won't these people cooperate? Why won't they get with the program? Why am I still battling the sin in my life that makes this ministry so difficult? It's at that mo- those moments that instead of complaining or quitting, we must remember the necessity of our hard work and rely on the strength that God provides to do that work. So as we read this text this morning, we need to look in the mirror. Does this describe our church, this kind of gospel ministry? Does this describe you? You're not an apostle, and none of you are pastors, but we're all servants of Christ who are called to be and make disciples. That's going to look different for all of us. Some of us have more or less capacity for that in terms of our time 
in our season of life, our relationships, and our giftings. But all of us are called to this ministry. Are you willing to suffer to be faithful? Will you faithfully proclaim Christ? Are you seeking the maturity of the saints? Are you spending yourself for Christ and his church and depending on his power to do so? Friends, this is not just Paul's ministry method. It's the only ministry method. There's not another model for faithful gospel ministry. Paul's ministry here sets the example for all who would follow Christ and advance his gospel and make disciples. Christ is supreme. And in all things, he must be preeminent. May he be esteemed as such in our hearts and proclaimed as such by our mouths and known as such through our faithful labors. Fathers, we look into your word. We are thankful for the many who have labored and suffered and proclaimed the gospel and poured themselves into us. We have benefited from their faithful ministry. And Lord, we're sobered to see that the bar has been set high. And God, we don't want to move the bar. We want to reach it. And we ask that you'd give us the grace and the power and the energy to do so. Give us a laser focus on Christ. Make us faithful. Give us the strength to endure. And Lord, we pray that you would bring many to yourself through our proclamation of Christ and that you would continue your work of renovating our hearts to bring us to maturity and help us to lead others to do the same. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.